John 3, starting at 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into that light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Two important announcements this morning. First is, uh, we are moving back to one service next week. Why is the question? A couple reasons. Um, our, our church is being ravaged right now by cold and flu and COVID, so our numbers are down quite a bit. Uh, number two, one service is way less wear and tear on our volunteers, and one service will help us prepare to move into our new facility. And speaking of that, the second announcement is this. The plan right now is to have our first worship service at our new facility February 6th which is essentially in exactly a month. Now, um, that, that date is somewhat tentative. As many of you know, construction dates are often very fluid, flexible things. Uh, but at this point, we're really hoping that February 6th is the first date of our worship service at the new facility. So what that means is uh, Sunday, January 30th, is our last time meeting here. And right after church on that Sunday the 30th, we're gonna have a big move party and we're gonna to try to move most of the things that Sunday afternoon. And we need 30 volunteers to sign up to help us move uh, tables, chairs, couches, et cetera, on January 30th. So go to our website today or tomorrow and sign up to be a part of that move crew. The move will probably take uh, around two to three hours. We're gonna provide lunch for those that help. And we're asking for adults, um, not kids, because we're, we're gonna be moving lots of heavy things. So 30 volunteers to sign up Sunday, January 30th for our big move party. <laughs> this has been nine years in the making, literally. I'll talk about that more in the future. Well, let's, let's pray and um, ask for God's blessing on this morning's preaching. Father, we are so thankful that you have given us uh, so many reasons to worship you this morning. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Thank you, Spirit of God for giving us the faith to believe the gospel. We pray that now, as we think carefully about sacred scripture, that you would reveal yourself to us by the Spirit's mighty power. We confess that nothing good will happen right now unless you move by the power of the Spirit. So please move and perform miracles this morning as the word is preached. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. It was spring break of 1997. The location was Panama City, Florida, and I can still feel 
the white, warm sand on my bare feet. Um, I can hear the seagulls above me, and I can feel that warm breeze hitting me from the ocean. Every year around spring break, Campus Crusade for Christ sends hundreds of students to Panama City, Florida to evangelize all the students who were there that week for one specific purpose, and that is to party their brains out. Literally thousands of students descend upon that beach from all across the nation, and so Crusade shows up in force uh, to proclaim the gospel. So every morning, uh, hundreds of us would hear a rousing sermon, then we would go out uh, in twos and share the gospel with uh, strangers all week from all across the nation. Now that week, I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with at least a dozen different college students from all across the nation. And as you can imagine, some of those students responded to the gospel, but many did not. Which raises an important question that you've probably had yourself, and that is, why do some people respond to the gospel why others do not respond to the gospel? The gospel is such good news, and there's so much compelling evidence for its truthfulness, it seems like everyone would respond savingly, but as we all know, many people choose not to respond to the gospel savingly. They choose not to believe, while others choose to believe. And the question is, why? Why do some choose to believe and others choose not to believe? Now, from a divine perspective, we know very clearly from Ephesians 1, Romans 9, and many other places that God is sovereign over who believes. But from a human perspective, again, why do some choose to believe and others choose not to believe? That question is addressed in this morning's passage. And this passage is found right in the middle of a conversation between Jesus Christ and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Now, let me read uh, verse 16, which we covered in detail two weeks ago. Uh, Jesus says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This verse explains very clearly what happens to those that believe the gospel. Amazingly, they experience eternal life. But this raises the question, what happens to those who do not believe the gospel? And the next five verses unpack that question. More specifically, the questions are, what happens to unbelievers? What, what specifically do they not believe, and why don't they believe it? And again, the next five verses in John 3 very specifically answer this, these particular questions. All these verses have to do with the topic of unbelief. So I've titled this sermon, The Anatomy of Unbelief. Three points this morning. The results of unbelief the object of unbelief, and then the reasons for unbelief. So first, the result of unbelief. What is the result of you and I not believing the gospel? And the answer is very clear in this passage. The result, very sadly, is condemnation. Look with me at verses 17 to 18. John writes, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, praise God. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
According to these verses, whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned. Yet, whoever believes is not condemned. Now, John decides to use the, the language here, actually Jesus, the language of condemnation and not being condemned. And that is, as many of you know, a courtroom language. Uh, The word condemnation isn't necessarily a religious word. Uh, It's a word taken out of courts of law from the first century. And the question is, why does Jesus switch now to courtroom language in verses 17 and 18? Because he knows that someday all of us will appear before the great tribunal. We will all stand before God, the great judge of the universe. Now, have you ever been in a courtroom. Unfortunately, I have been summoned twice now to be in a courtroom, and not because I was in trouble. It was because I was summoned to serve on jury duty. The first time I was summoned, I was chosen to be a juror, even though I tried to get out of it with everything in my my being, but I was chosen to be a a juror. And that first case um, was actually a very, very boring case. It dealt with an auto accident. Uh, And it was, in fact, so boring that the judge kept falling asleep, literally, uh, as he was sitting behind the bench. And the jurors all laughed about it later, because we all saw him snoring uh, during the proceedings. But the next case I served on was much more interesting. It had to do uh, with a drug bust, and I learned way more than I ever wanted to know about the Spokane drug culture and full-body cavity searches. Now, our court system is designed to dispense justice as fairly as possible, and it's actually a very good system. As a result, in both cases, we heard from the plaintiff and the defense. We heard from eyewitness testimony. We heard from expert testimony. We heard from police officers. And, of course, we heard from lawyers. And all this testimony was designed to help us, the jurors, reach a verdict. And it was all supposed to be based on evidence. And again, we have a pretty good system in our nation. If you haven't served on jury duty, I'd highly recommend it. It'll help you appreciate what we have in this nation. Although it's not a great system, it is a good system. But even the best systems sometimes don't work. Sometimes facts get distorted. Sometimes people lie. Sometimes the bad guys don't get condemned, and sometimes the good guys do get condemned. But in the divine courtroom, at the end of the age, perfect justice will prevail. Someday, we will all stand in that courtroom, and Jesus, the judge, will judge all of us with perfect knowledge. He knows all of our thoughts, all of our motives, all of our words, and all of our deeds. Imagine what would happen if all your thoughts, and I mean all your thoughts, followed you around on a screen above your head for the whole world to see. Imagine that for a week. I guarantee you, you'd probably lose most of your friends if they all saw all your thoughts all the time. God knows all of our thoughts, all of our motives, all of our deepest, darkest secrets. It's also important to remember that the standard of judgment is Jesus Christ himself. The standard is not your neighbor or Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or Michael Jordan. 
or your parents or your siblings. The standard is Jesus Christ himself. The standard is perfection, and God requires all of us to be perfect. And if we're not, we will be condemned for all eternity. All those who do not believe, Jesus tells us, will be condemned at that great scene at the end of the age when Jesus Christ returns to judge everyone with perfect justice. But there is incredibly good news in this passage. Back to our verse, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever believes in Jesus will not be condemned, even if you're a sinner. And by the way, we're all sinners. But all those who choose to believe in Jesus will never, ever, ever be condemned. That means that all of our sins will be removed and will receive all the perfection of Jesus, which will enable us to spend all eternity in glorified resurrection bodies in the presence of the triune God. And that's reserved not for righteous people, but for people who choose to believe. It's that simple. It's that scandalous. If you simply believe, you will not be condemned. But if you choose not to believe, Jesus is very clear. You will be condemned for all eternity. But what specifically do people refuse to believe? And that brings us to the second point. So first, the results of unbelief, and second is the object of unbelief. What don't unbelievers believe? What are they refusing to believe? The text tells us that they don't believe in the name of the Son of God. Again, look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The last phrase in verse 18 specifically describes the object of saving faith. For us to not be condemned, we must believe something very, very particular or specific. We must believe not just in any name or anyone or any God, but in the name of the Son of God. That is, in Jesus Christ. Salvation is only found in one name, the name of Jesus Christ, which means we must trust Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone to save no other being, no other name, no other God, no other system provides salvation. It's only found in the specific name of Jesus. Now, the Bible is very, very clear on this particular point. Let me read some other texts to support what Jesus Christ is saying here, although he doesn't need support, but there are other texts that say the same thing. Consider Acts 4, 11 to 12. This Jesus is the stone 
that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. Just to be clear, he says, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is Peter's sermon inspired by the Holy Spirit. How about 1 Timothy 2? We sang about this this morning. For there is one God, and there is one mediator, not many mediators, but one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He's the only one who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And then I'll read one more, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those were incredibly bold words. If any of you said that, I would think you were nuts. But Jesus has the audacity to say that he and he alone is the only way to the Father. He's the only name that saves, which means every other way leads to perdition and destruction. Now, at this point, people often complain and say, are you really saying there's only one way to God? (laughs) Really only one way? But imagine for a moment being locked up in prison for 50 years. This is the most secure prison on planet Earth. There is no way to escape this prison. It's very locked down. It's very secure. You cannot escape. But then the warden comes to you and says, because I have compassion on you, I'm going to provide a way of escape. At midnight tonight, I'm going to unlock your door, and all you have to do is walk out the door. That's it. Walk out the door, and you're free. But I'm warning you, he says, if you try to escape any other way between now and then, you'll spend the rest of your life in prison. If you try to climb out the window, prison for life. If you try to dig through the walls, prison for life. If you try to dig through the floor, prison for life. But there is a way of escape. All you have to do at midnight is walk out the door and you're free forever. Now at this point, I doubt you would say to him, really, there's only one way? Why aren't there more ways? Are you kidding me? There's a way. There's a way. God owes us nothing. He does not owe us any ways of escape. He owes us justice. Yet motivated by extravagant love and mercy, he has provided a way of escape, and there's only one way. And that one way of escape is through the name of Jesus Christ. You must believe specifically in his name, which means that conscious faith in Jesus Christ is required for us to escape condemnation. Jesus Christ is very, very clear on that particular and controversial point in our current cultural moment. Instead of complaining about our lack of options, we should dance and sing for joy because there's a way. 
Back to our verse. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now let me spell this out a little bit more just to be clear. This means that sincere Muslims and Buddhists and atheists and Hindus and Mormons who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ will be condemned for all eternity. Why? God will not share his salvific glory with another. How dare we utter the name of Buddha and Allah and Confucius in the same breath with Jesus Christ? Really? What is Buddhism? What is Islam? What is Mormonism? Man-made religions. Said another way, those are ideologies or religions invented by infinitesimally small humans who live on an infinitesimally small planet floating in a vast cosmos living on a pale blue dot. Jesus Christ is the maker of all things. How dare we? Give his glory to another in salvation. Jesus cares deeply about his glory. And salvation is only found in the name of Jesus. And the question is, are you and I willing to say that in our cultural moment? If not, we are being unfaithful to Jesus in John 3.18. It may cost us our jobs, jail time, fines, prison for saying in the future that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. If you think I'm being naive, read church history, look around the world. Are you willing to say Jesus Christ is the only way? And if that brings persecution, what that simply means for us is more jewels on her crown in heaven. Who doesn't want that? Jesus Christ is the only way. His name is the only name that saves. When people refuse to believe, they refuse to specifically believe in the name of Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to actually believe in the name of Jesus? It's more than just a mental agreement to a set of facts. Belief in the name of Jesus Christ is a wholehearted commitment to follow Jesus wherever he tells us to go. What it means to be a Christian is to believe and obey every word in this book. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. You believe in him so much, you trust him so much, you do whatever he says, as described in the scriptures. Now, sadly, many people refuse to believe in the name of Jesus. The question is, why? Why? Why do they refuse to believe in his name? And that brings us to the last point. 
So first, the result of unbelief. Second, the object of unbelief. And third, the reasons for unbelief. Why do people refuse to believe in Jesus? Because they love sin. Look with me at verses 19 to 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone, who does not, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So in verses 16 to 18, Jesus talks about those who believe and those who don't believe. And then verses 19 to 20, he addresses the same subject from a different angle. Rather than using the language of belief and unbelief, he uses the language now of love and hate, but he's talking about the exact same subject. To believe the gospel is to love the light of the world. To not believe the gospel is to love the darkness or to love sin. Said another way, people who don't believe love the darkness, and people who believe love the light. Jesus is describing here the deep internal reasons and motives for why people decide not to believe. Let me read the text again, see if you can pick up on these themes. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness, love their sin, rather than the light, that is Jesus, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, who sins, hates the light, that is, hates Jesus, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus is simply saying this. People refuse to believe the gospel because they love their sins. If they repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, their evil deeds will be exposed, and they don't want their evil deeds exposed, so they refuse to believe. Donald Gray Barnhouse was the pastor for decades of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And during his ministry, he was invited to go and speak at a college campus to a bunch of college students. And he addressed the topic of the gospel. He spoke for about 30 minutes on the personal work of Jesus Christ. And afterwards, a young lady walked up to him, and her face was contorted with anger. She was clearly upset about what he had said. And she lividly denounced the gospel that he had just preached and explained that she had abandoned all that several months ago uh, when she arrived at college. And Dr. Barnhouse said to her, were you raised in a Christian home? And she said, yes. He then wisely asked, when did you decide to reject Christianity? And she said, it was in November, a few months ago. And then he wisely said, well, what happened in October? And then she broke down in tears and admitted that in October, she began to date a non-Christian, and they had gotten involved in a sexually immoral relationship. And her combination of sinful desire and guilt and shame 
caused her to reject the faith. Notice, she did not reject the faith for philosophical or intellectual reasons. She rejected the faith for moral reasons. She wanted to stop feeling the guilt and the condemnation brought on by her sin. I've heard Tim Keller say on more than one occasion, he's a pastor or was a pastor in New York, that whenever a young person comes to his office and says to him, Dr. Keller, uh, I think I'm about to abandon the Christian faith, the first thing he'll ask them is, who are you sleeping with? Because he's learned over the years that often one of the main reasons that young people abandon the faith is because they want to live immoral lives, not because they have intellectual reasons. Now, I understand there are many, many reasons for people to not believe in Christianity. But one of the primary reasons is this moral reason. Christianity exposes our sin. And we don't like to have our sin and our darkness exposed for the world to see. But the bottom line is this. People don't believe because they don't want to believe. Aldous Huxley was one of the 20th century's leading atheists. In his memoir, he writes these amazing words. He says, For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness, that is atheism, was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was liberation from a certain system of morality. We object to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. This is an amazing admission. The 20th century's, one of the greatest atheists is saying this. He chose atheism not because of the evidence, but because he wanted to be freed from a certain type of moral thinking. Along the same lines, the noted atheist and NYU philosopher Thomas Nagel wrote this. I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. Isn't that interesting? I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. To be like what? I don't want a God telling me what to do with my life. Again, an amazing admission. Both these guys are essentially saying they don't want to believe in God, so they've found evidence to the contrary. Maybe this describes you this morning. Maybe you refuse to believe in the name of Jesus Christ because you know that believing in Jesus, surrendering to him, means that you are making him Lord of your life. You know that following Jesus means you will have to be generous with your money. 
You know that following Jesus means you will have to control your lusts for alcohol and drugs and sex. Following Jesus means, you know, you'll have to forgive certain people which you don't want to do. And you know that following Jesus means that your time is not your own. And that you need to serve others and you need to submit to your boss and submit to the civil authorities. And you don't like any of those things. You think that Jesus will ruin your life Take away all your joy and make things miserable. And ironically, the opposite is true. It's only when you submit to Jesus and surrender to his lordship that you'll experience any real meaning or joy or purpose or significance in this life. Here's the point. People refuse to believe not because they're following the evidence. People refuse to believe because they love sin. The evidence for Christian theism is overwhelming. The more we learn about astronomy and physics and biology and archaeology, the more convinced we can be as Christians that the Bible is trustworthy and true. (laughs) Romans 1 makes it very clear. Paul says, we're without excuse. Just look around. There's something and not nothing. There's creation when there shouldn't be anything. That's the reason you need, and that's the only reason you need to believe in the God of the Bible. But that's not the issue. The issue is not a lack of evidence. We have all kinds of evidence for Christian theism. The issue is, ultimately, we love our sin. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. And Jesus lived, died, and rose from the grave. He's king of kings and lord of lords, and he has the right to tell us what to do. And by the way, Jesus says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We don't have to have advanced degrees in apologetics to reach our secular friends. Apologetics is wonderful. I love apologetics. I think there's great evidence for Christian theism. But all you have to do is proclaim the gospel and pray like crazy. Because these are heart issues and sin issues. So who is that one person in your life right now who needs to hear the gospel? who needs to believe in the name of Jesus, who needs to hear from you that Jesus Christ is the only way. God has sovereignly placed people in your life that need to hear this message. Who are they? Who's that name that comes to mind right now as you're sitting here and thinking about this? Who's that one person that God has placed in your life that needs to hear the message of John 3? There's someone in all of our lives. Who is that one person? Well, in John 3, 16 to 21, we see the results of unbelief, the object of unbelief, and the reasons for unbelief. Will you believe? 
October 8, 1871, the great evangelist Dwight L. Moody spoke to a huge crowd in Chicago about the life of Christ. And as he wrapped up his talk, he read the words of Pontius Pilate from Matthew 27, 22. Pontius Pilate says, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Moody concluded this sermon by challenging people to think about Pilate's question over the next week in order to come prepared to church the next Sunday to make a decision about Jesus. He wanted to leave them with something over the week to contemplate. But the following Sunday never came because the great Chicago fire destroyed the church building and took the lives of thousands of people, many of them who had attended this particular worship service. What's the moral of the story? Believe on Jesus Christ now. Do it today. Don't wait until you finish college. Don't wait until you're done having fun. Don't wait until you have kids. Don't wait until you're done making money. Don't wait until you retire. Believe on Jesus Christ today. If you do, you will not be condemned. You'll experience glory in the presence of the triune God for all eternity. Let's pray together.